listening to First Church Charlotte. All right, my sermon title today is uh, Going My Way. And we are going to look at a story that's given to us in the scripture, 2 Chronicles chapter number 15. And I'm going to endeavor to, if the Lord will help me, to make this passage live for all of us. Uh, I want to, uh, first of all, invite everyone in this moment to make sure that they are uh, focusing their hearts and their minds and gathering themselves to put the Lord at the center of their attention for a little while. Uh, Church is a lot of things. We have fun at church. We have a lot of fellowship at church. But the point of the service ultimately is for us to incline our hearts toward God. Let his word begin to take up resident in our hearts. Can I have a big amen? Amen. And so I am going to uh, go ahead and get started. If you would grant me some of your attention for a little while. Going my way. Let me start by explaining the title. Um, There was a quite famous movie made in 1944. It was a Bing Crosby movie. So if any of you like Bing Crosby's music, (laughs) which sounds much better than that, uh, you might remember this. And it was the end of World War II. And the movie just was a mega hit. Uh, it, I wasn't alive then, quite to your disappointment, so I have no memory of this whatsoever. Um, but it's this famous movie and uh, 10 Academy Award nominations, won seven Academy Awards, the largest grossing movie of the year, and so popular that it became part of the Americana, kind of the way we do things, the way we remember things. Uh, And the title of the movie was Going My Way. Now, it isn't uncommon for a movie to become so popular that it enters the manner in which we speak one to another, the Americana uh, of our society. I'll give you some other examples. If you've ever used the phrase or heard the phrase used, um, I'm going to make you an offer you can't refuse. Uh, that's a movie making it into popular culture. Or uh, how about this? Go ahead and make my day. Uh, and uh, if you're a space type, you will remember, may the force be with you. All of these are phrases, uh, words from movies that were very popular in our society, and they made their way into the collective memory of our society. And so after this super popular movie going my way, that phrase uh, became part of the manner in which a whole generation spoke one to another and even even flirted one with another. Uh, It became kind of a famous way to uh, flirt with someone. Are you going my way? Now, I know kids nowadays are way too cool for that kind of a thing, uh, but it was popular back in the day. And if you read from that time, you'll actually find it, as I have in several books written in that time, where you have dialogue between characters and some characters walking down the road and they see another character and they're like, are you going my way? Um, I want to, having, having established that as a theme, I want to tell you a story from the Old Testament. Story, as I mentioned earlier, Second Chronicles chapter number 15 
And the story is of a prophet of Israel and a king of Israel. The prophet, his name is Azariah. And the king, his name is Asa. And so because they both start with A, uh, it can be confusing. And to be perfectly honest with you, at least once I've been guilty of preaching about Azariah and saying Asa through the whole message. Uh, That's what preachers do. So uh, even so, people were blessed. That's all I have to say about that. So um, I, I want to... I want to tell you this story because there's a lesson in this story that I want to, if the Lord will help me, I want to bring to your attention. Uh, so let's, let's consider this passage. Uh, here you have the prophet coming to the king. The kingdom, as it were, of Judah, it is not doing well. It's not doing well spiritually. It's having some success in its civil life, but... They have drifted far from God. And so the prophet comes to King Asa and he says this. This is verse 1. Hear me, Asa, and all Judah and Benjamin. The Lord is with you while you are with him. Consider this manner of speech. The Lord is with you while you are with him. If you seek him, you will be found by him. If you, this is a dependent statement, if you seek him, then he will be found by you. And then, of course, in the manner of the Old Testament, a stern warning, if you forsake him, he will forsake you. In other words, it's your commitment that is that question, not God's commitment. God is not a man that he should lie. He has no need to make a claim that he will not keep. And he has made covenant promise to you. So if you build a life without God, that's not on him, that's on you. He has already made every way he can to integrate you into his kingdom. He has broke down every barrier that there is to keep you from his presence. The vote in heaven has already been cast. And the vote is that God is for you. The vote is that God loves you. The vote is that God is committed to you. Heaven has already spoken. God is on your side. And this isn't a random accident, but he shed his love upon you. He covered you with mercy and grace. All that's left for you is to respond. That's what the prophet is trying to say. Heaven has already expressed its commitment to this covenant, King Asa. If it is missed, it's not because heaven is not committed to you. It's because you are not committed to heaven. All right. Now, let's continue here. Uh, The king hears this warning and he surveys his kingdom and he uh, notices that there's a lot of idolatry in his kingdom. And he responds to this commandment uh, in the terms of banishing false gods. He responds to this directive of the prophet in terms of setting aside false idols. And we uh, know from verse number eight that Asa heard these words. um, And the uh, 
he, he took courage and he removed the abominable idols from all the land of Judah and Benjamin and from the cities which he had taken in the mountains of Ephraim. And he restored the altar of the Lord that was before the vestibule of the Lord. He, the king, not the priesthood, not the, the high priest, he, the king, restored the altar of the Lord that was before the vestibule of the Lord. As if to show us that not all of the sacred work of the covenant could be done by priesthood. He had to restore the altar that was before the vestibule of the Lord. As if to say, the priesthood are going to keep the inward parts of the temple. Uh, You need to worry about the altar of approach to the temple. Do you see? You need to care whether or not your altar is being restored. All right, so we're going through this story and we're seeing this and uh, we, have, we have thought about it, we have um, considered it and he responds to this challenge of the prophet and he removes the idols that had been set up to other gods and he, uh, he rebuilds the altar unto the Lord. Now, let me tell you a little bit of my experience with this passage. I have, for the whole of my life, loved the word of the Lord And I, for the most part, have spent the better part of my life uh, regularly in the word of the Lord. Uh, I, by being a teacher and preacher, I have been obligated uh, to regularly hold scriptures in my hands, to hold scriptures in my mind. Uh, Whether I was an evangelist or a pastor, uh, I always knew Sunday was coming and (laughs) I always had to be holding scripture. And so I have preached a lot. I've studied a lot. I have listened to a lot of preaching in the manner of all young preachers. I first was a thief. Nobody laughed because you've never been a young preacher. Um, But I used other people's thoughts. I read other people's sermons. I listened to other people's preaching. I have heard uh, 2 Chronicles 15 preached several times. And it is always preached as a backslider story. And Uh, That's not wrong. Uh, Hear what I'm saying. It's not at all wrong that it is a backslider story because on the surface it goes like this. Asa, you haven't really been doing well. And the area, the kingdom you are responsible for has lost its way and is pursuing false gods. So what you need to do, you need to quit living that way. You need to repent of your sins. You need to get rid of the idols and you need to rebuild your altar to the Lord. It is a clear and even powerful backslider story. So let me give it to you on the surface version of it. If you're not living right, the Lord would like you to know that you can do better. Big amen. It was just this side of the church I got an amen on. I need some amens over here. Point, point at your neighbor. Say, that was for you. You haven't been living right. You need to do better. Go ahead and tell them. Thank you very much. Uh, I want you to be aware that this is the surface reading of the passage, and it's not wrong. Uh, it's good. It's powerful. This is how I usually have preached this story. We hear that, okay, I haven't been living right, and we apply it to our ethics, We apply it to the sins we know we've been committing. We apply it to the things we shouldn't have been doing that we're doing. Can I have a big confessional yes? And we think to ourselves, I need to do better. Can I have a big amen? amen? And so we have the story of idols 
applied to the backslider. And what do we take out of it? A list of things we ought to do or ought not to do. We see it as idolatry and we apply it as uh, Christian living. This is not wrong, but I want you to see there is a deeper understanding than simply, I haven't been doing as good as I need to do. Therefore, I'm going to repent and I'm going to start doing better. How would I explain that to you? Well, very quickly, um, I want you to know, first of all, uh, ethics are not new to the New Testament. Ethics weren't born in the New Testament. The Old Testament is full of ethics. Somebody say yes. Uh, Morality isn't new at the time of the New Testament. Morality is in the Old Testament. Somebody say yes. Uh, We have Ten Commandments that's repeated in the New Testament as a way, but it's given where? In the Old Testament. The Old Testament has plenty of ethics, yes. It has plenty of morality, yes. It has plenty of be a good father. That's not something that's new in the New Testament. It has plenty of be a good uh, husband. All the wives say amen. If your husband's not doing good, you get an Old Testament, you hit him right over the head with it. My wife's been doing it for years. (laughs) It's not simply like these principles of right living are new in the book of Matthew. They are old. But when the prophet comes to King Asa, he doesn't make a list of you ought to do this better and you ought to do that better and you ought to be a better husband. Most kings need to be a better husband if you read your history. Uh, You ought to be a better father. Uh, Most kings probably, particularly during this time of Jewish life, they should have been a better father. Uh, You need to quit cheating your subjects. There is uh, the word of the Lord that said you can have a king speaking to the house of Israel, but he's going to tax you. He's going to take the lives of your young men and women. Uh, It's not as though the prophet makes a list of Christian living and says, this is what you ought to do. That's how we apply it when we hear the backslider message. But the problem is deeper. The problem is more profound. And I want to, if the Lord will help me show you this, that simply a list of you ought to do this and you ought not to do that. The prophet does not show up with a list of how to do things right and the list of things you've been doing wrong. The prophet shows up and gives them, gives the king insight into an idolatry issue. And so when the king looks around, he doesn't make a list of personal to-dos. He doesn't come down uh, with three books on how to be a better father. Stay with me. He doesn't make a list on how to be a better husband, although I'm sure... He could have benefited from making efforts in all those areas. He sees the problem of an idol and he understands he has to remove the idols that are turning the hearts of the people away from Yahweh. Here is the reality about a God that you worship. The idol you worship is not simply a placeholder. It's not simply a symbol. It is taking you somewhere. Just as the movie made the phrase popular. And for a whole generation, one person might say to another person in a uh, 
even flirtatious way. Are you going my way? So the idol speaks to your heart and asks you, are you going my way? You see, we think of idols in a certain way, and the Old Testament people worshipped idols in a certain way. Uh, Idol is not a relationship of confession. It is a relationship of request. Stay with me. You don't go to an idol and say, I've got to confess that I haven't been a good dad. I've got to confess I haven't been a good husband. That's not a confessional relationship with an idol. You have a request relationship with an idol. If you want money, you go to the idol that you think best represents money. And what do you do? You don't confess how you need to do better. You ask for money. You say, please give me a lottery ticket. You have a relationship of imploring. You see, God is not interested in simply serving you he wants you to serve him but you cannot have an idol without serving it why because you have allowed it to represent something you want or need and then you go there to bargain and beg and ask and wish and your idol becomes a wish catcher and you throw your wishes at it and to an idol of money you ask for money and to an idol of love you ask for a girlfriend or a boyfriend and to an idol of power you go and you say please help me win the election if you do for me I will do for you it is only a relationship of serve negotiate plead ask wish and yes imploringly pray This is not the kind of relationship God wants to have with his people. It was never intended about him being your Sears and Roebuck in the sky. And you get your Sears and Roebuck catalog, you know, think back many, many years ago, back when some of you were wee children, and the only entertainment you had was the Sears and Roebuck catalog. And uh, you grew up looking through that Sears and Roebuck catalog and everything you wanted to buy. I used to love catalogs growing up. I would circle what I felt I truly need. Some of us serve God that way. We go to God and we ask to give, to give, to give as though he serves us. We have a request relationship. We do not have a confessional relationship. Here's the reality of the idol. When you seek it, it's taking you somewhere. It is the hands laid upon the clay of your heart. And as you spin and spin through your days and months and years, it shakes you because there you go and you wish and you desire. If only I had the right job, then I would be happy. If only I had the right significant other, then I would be happy. If only I had the right career opportunity, then I would be happy. And that is what we worship. And we wonder why God is not in our lives. Because God will not settle for a relationship like that. And so here you see uh, the reality that if he's going to take the people of God to a relationship Do you hear me? If he's going to take the people of God to a relationship, it's not simply going to be 
a list of do's and don'ts, although lists can be very helpful. Can I have an amen? It's not simply uh, writing out of what you've done wrong, although organizing yourself can be very helpful. What it is, is it a, it's an altar that you have to maintain. Did you hear what I just said? It's an altar that you have to maintain. There is an altar in your life the priesthood cannot maintain for you. There's an altar in your life that the high priest can't come out and take care of for you. You have to value it. You have to protect it. You have to restore it. You have to rebuild it or it won't get built. We have a great team of pastors here at the church. We have a great team of leaders. We have great worship team. We do everything we can do. And you can come and get a little blessing on accident. You can get a little splash over from the passion and the prayer and the worship and praise of the praise team. But that's not as the same thing as you build an altar and you say, I'm going to maintain this altar. You restoring it, you protecting it, you valuing it, and you showing up there to what? To see the Lord. You see, you, you don't seek an idol. You use an idol. I wish I could preach better. You guys might take this a little bit further into your week. You don't seek an idol. You use an idol. You negotiate with an idol. You go and make a type of Faustian bargain. Faust is the original story of the guy who sold his soul for the devil to the devil in order to get what he wanted. You make this kind of Faustian bargain with an idol. I'll give you, you give me. That is not how you're going to find the Lord. If you're going to find the Lord, King Asa, you're going to have to seek him. And so we see here the statement that the uh, prophet makes to him. And he says this truth to him uh, that they, uh, if you will seek the Lord, you will be found by the Lord. It will not be accidental. It will not be random. If you seek the Lord, then will you find him. The onus must be upon your decision. It must be your choice. It must be what you do. If you seek him, he will be found by you. If you forsake him, uh, he will forsake you. This is not a service agreement. This is an invitation to relationship. And heaven has already voted. And now the onus is upon your decision. Uh, one more time, let me try to show you the importance of uh, and the power of the idol in a manner that you can understand it. There's a quite famous uh, book right now, quite popular book written by Susan Cain. And the title of the book is uh, Introvert. Uh, I think that's the, I have it in my notes here. Let me make sure I get this right since I'm quoting from a book. The name of the book is Quiet. That's right. The power of of introverts in a world that can't stop talking. Something very interesting uh, happens in the book. Uh, just as an aside, it's a great book, particularly if you're introspective, you will appreciate it because you probably have lived a lot of your life feeling undervalued. Um, I, I want to confess that I, uh, I am an introvert, although I hide it very, very well. I've learned how to uh, throw my heart at people and uh, throw my affection at people. Uh, that was hard won. Uh, my natural state is to stay in my uh, office with a book or a computer. 
In this book, Quiet, the author does something amazing. I never realized this until I, was, I, I came across this. Um, she describes idolatry in the terms of modern psychology. I had never seen that before. Uh, idolatry is not the kind of thing that you think of a psychologist caring about one way or uh, one way or the other. And uh, she unintentionally describes it in these psychological terms. And she uses a psychological phrase that one uh, psychotherapist might say to a psychiatrist. You get the idea. And it's this. Uh, a reward-sensitive person, a person who values their life, uh, chooses their, 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 their goals on the basis primarily of being reward-sensitive, or to say another way, uh, what's in it for me. Uh, and so this reward-sensitive person begins to orient, orient uh, him or herself in a certain way. Let me, let me read a quote from you. A reward-sensitive person is highly motivated to seek rewards from a promotion to a, ladder, a lottery jackpot to an enjoyable evening out with friends. Reward sensitivity motivates us to pursue goals like sex and money, social status and influence. It prompts us to climb ladders and reach for faraway branches in order to gather life's choicest fruits. And she goes on to say life's choicest fruits, these things like money and relationships and power, they are some of the top idols that humans through all the human story have, have served. And so what is happening uh, here is a reward sensitive person is turning a good thing into the ultimate thing. Everything that you might be motivated in your life to pursue in its right way is probably a good thing. There are exceptions, but it's probably a good thing. Let's say you have a desire to be highly successful in your career. Honorable, uh, there is, believe it or not, an actual theology of work, uh, which I am very sympathetic to, which looks biblically at how your gifts are not simply expressed on Sunday, but your gifts are expressed throughout your life, and you become part of the glory of God and your ability to do and to create and to accomplish. Uh, I'm very sympathetic to all of that. It is a good thing. Building a business is a, a good thing. It's hard. Uh, it has ups and downs. Uh, you have to have grit. Uh, you have to be clever. You have to be entrepreneurial. It's a good thing. Finding a relationship with someone you can spend your life with is a good thing. Lots of ups and downs. Can I have a big amen on that one? Uh, the, you will go from loving them to hating them. They will go from hating you to loving you. And back again. Uh, it's a good thing to seek good relationships. It's a wonderful thing to find someone to spend your life with. Your skill and a hobby or a creative endeavor is a good thing. The money you save is a good thing. Your investing prowess, whether it be stock or crypto, take your poison. Whatever you like, it's a good thing. Your workout, looking to create guns like I have, it's a good thing. I have a, not a six pack, but I have one big pack under this shirt. It's a good thing. All of these are good things. Somebody say yes. yes. 
it's a testimony when someone masters the lust of their flesh, whether it is morality or a diet. They're both hard. In fact, I would say most people can master their morality before they do their diet. My God, break it down and make it plain. All of these are good things. Regular workouts are good things. Organizing your garage is a good thing. When does it turn into idolatry? When you take a good thing and make it the ultimate. All of a sudden you are seeking the ultimate and something that could never be the ultimate. You're looking for something that is always limited by its essence to fulfill which you cannot even describe in you. You take a tangible and say it will be enough for the mystery of my heart. You take something definable and say it's going to answer the indefinable element of my soul. And you're always left with a negotiation with a good you have made an ultimate and wondering why you feel like the joke is on you because the joke is on you. Those things could never be a God to you. When we serve anything that we have made into an idol, it is always a limited relationship, but it is not harmless. It takes us somewhere. It's as though the idol looks flirtatiously over his or her shoulder and looks at your heart and says, going my way, because the truth is you are going their way. And this is deeper than a list of thou shouts and thou shalt nots. This is literally the hands that mold the clay of your heart and your life, there's a better path for us. We need to realize these things can never be anything more than a good thing. And we have to go through the kingdoms of our life and say, this has reached a status where I think my blessing is here. I started out building a a business, but now I'm living as though that business is going to make me happy. I started out seeking a relationship, but after a a string of toxic detritus through my life, I understand I now have a dysfunctional glorification of something that cannot be a God to me. And you know what you need to do? You need to take those idols, you need to cast them down, and you need to build an altar of relationship. You've got to build that altar. You've got to keep that altar. Here's the reality. Reward sensitive people. This is quoting again from the book. Ignore obvious warning signs. They are obvious and should be seen. But reward sensitivity and incidentally idolatry. Reward sensitivity makes us blind. This is why people with bad habits and addictions can have such a hard time changing. They can't even see their problem. They are blind to it and ultimately they are as helpless as the gods they serve. All right, let me throw some scripture at you here. Psalms 135, verse number 15. The idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak. They have eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Nor is there any breath in their mouth. Those who would make them become like them. I'm going to repeat myself. Those who make them become like them. Those who make them 
Become like them. The idol in your life is taking you somewhere. It's not for free. Its hands are on your heart. And it is shaping you. It is changing you. It is making you not into who God said you should be, but into who you allow your idol to make you into. And so all of us, have to understand that idols, be they of an ancient type, which is not the problem today, or be they the things we pursue because we believe that will make us happy. This is what you do with an idol. You go and you seek meaning. You seek happiness. You seek blessing. You seek protection. And you go and you're blinded to the fact that you deified the thing you're treating as deity. It was not deity. You deified it. And so the idols of our life must be cast down. And we must be before the presence of the Lord saying, Here am I, Lord Jesus. I want to know your way. This is why Jesus did not teach in the manner of Ten Commandments. He is the original giver of the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are not negated. Don't be silly. He did not teach in that manner because a relationship with God is not simply a relationship of I do and you give, but it is a relationship of confession. You are no longer servants. You are friends. Build an altar. Heaven has already said it will show up. God has already promised to be there. He is going to keep his covenant. But will you build an altar? And will you show up with more than a Christmas list? Will you show up and say, I want to go your way, God. I want to have your values in my life. I am not looking for a label. I'm not looking for a shortcut. I want to know you. Everybody here today, I'm inviting you not just to be a churchified person. I'm inviting you to be a certain kind of person living by faith. You can be a part of a church and not be living by faith. You can come to services and still be bound by all of the fears and lusts of this world. Church will help, but you need more than church. You need an altar that you have built. Musicians and singers, please go ahead and come. I want to, uh, here at the close, I want to first Uh, Reminds you of the writings of the Apostle John who wrote his first letter to the church uh, and he explained to them why he was writing them a letter. Uh, It's not an accidental letter. He does it intentionally and he tells them at the very beginning why he is writing them a letter. 1 John 1 and 4. We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. What does the Apostle John want for all of us? He wants us to find joy. Somebody say, thank God. He wants you to be whole. He wants you to have joy. And he cared enough to write you a book. And so uh, he's writing so uh, you will have joy. And when he gets to the end of this book, what does he say? Let me tell you what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, uh, look, you know, um, (laughs) go out and cultivate joyful lives. Read lots of self-help books. Why did he write the letter to you? He wanted your joy to be full. So what is the last thing he wants to be ringing in your ears when he finishes? It's not follow your passion. Let me tell you what the last thing he says to you. Little children, 
Keep yourself from idols. Because idols make us live a life that feels like at the end of the day, the joke was on us. We deified something that did not in any regard have deity in it. When all along, God had built an altar and all he had wanted us to do was keep that altar. God had made a place for us. He had made a covenant with us. He had designed a way of worship for us. He had given us promise. He had given us presence. He had given us signs. He had given us wonders. All we had to do was show up, not to negotiate, not to in some way manipulate, not to have a relationship of give me, give me, give me, but to have a relationship of confession, of talk and receive, give and receive, include not servant, but friend, not stranger, but son. And let me end by telling you a story you have heard. But it's such a beautiful story. It ought to be told all around the world in churches where they're speaking about a Savior named Jesus. The writer here says something. If you seek him with all your hearts, if you seek him, you will find him. This is, again, if you seek him, he will be found by you. Have you ever played hide and seek with a child? If you play hide and seek with a little child, you can't hide too well. Because they won't find you. Now, once they get older, they get clever. They start hiding better. My little girl, I played hide and seek with her a few weeks back. I didn't know that one of the ottomans in our living room is actually a storage box. I had no idea you could lift the top up. My wife buys stuff and doesn't get permission. I gave her a form to fill out permission 97-2-NJ, permission to make a purchase. She has never once filled that dumb thing out. I don't know. Y'all pray for her. She bought this ottoman. I didn't know it was a storage box. And Ellery said, I'm going to hide, Daddy. And I said, okay. I'm like, whatever. She's not going to hide from me. I looked and I looked and I stink and looked. I could not find that little girl. They get older, they get clever. She's hiding in that dumb ottoman. There has never in the history of the world been a happier little girl than when she popped out of the top of that ottoman and said, Hi, Daddy. I had been truly and verily stumped. I'm still a little mad about it, too. I blame you, just so you know. Um, But when the children are little, you can't hide too well. They'll never find you. I want you to see something about God. God's not willing to be one of your gods. You're not going to stumble upon him by accident. But if you'll seek him, you'll find that he's not hiding very well in your life. He's not hiding very well in your life. Now, he's not going to jump out and grab you by the neck and yank you around. That's not his way. He's not going to force a relationship. But neither is he going to hide very well. And if you'll seek him at all, you'll find that he is among the stuff of your life. He's not hiding very well because he wants to be found by you. But it's going to be intentional. It's not going to be accidental. It's going to be intentional. If you will seek him, you will find him. All right. Now back to my story. 
The young man came of age, decided he wanted his own life, his own way. And he went to his father and he said, give me my inheritance. And his father did. And this was hurtful, of course, but uh, his father did. And he went to far land. And the Bible says he, he lived foolishly. And the thing about foolish living is it's not enough to be foolish. It's charging you by the hour. <laughs> and so pretty soon, not only does he discover that his plan for his life wasn't great, but he discovers he's broke. And the result of that is uh, he's in a bad way. Sitting there in his homelessness, sitting there on the street, sitting there without food to eat, he thinks, you know, even the servants who aren't a son, they're not a daughter. They're just servants. They have a better life than this in my father's house. And, they said, and he decided to himself, you know, I'm going to go home. And, and I'm sure all the way home he worried in his mind about what kind of reception he was going to get. I wonder if... I wonder how it's going to be, but I'm ready with an apology. I'm ready to take whatever I can get. I'm going home. He doesn't accidentally go home. He had to choose to go home. And as he's going home, he crossing that last horizon. He did not know that his father had a daily habit. And it was this. I'm not going to track him down, but I'm going to watch for him. And if I see even in a distance that my son is coming home. Every day, the father's tying up his training shoes. Maybe today's the day my son comes home. And he sees his son from a distance. And he puts those training shoes to use. He takes off running. And when he sees us, gets to his son, he doesn't hold himself in reserve. My son's so good to see you. He doesn't hold himself in formality. Dearly beloved, we're glad that you've returned home to the homestead. He throws his heart at his son. He wraps his arms around his son. And he greets him with a kiss. You don't kiss a servant. Why? They ain't family. I don't know if you notice this, but you're not supposed to go around randomly kissing people. If you do that, it might be a problem. They might start calling you a COVID-carrying creeper. <laughs> you kiss family. He doesn't greet him as a servant. He doesn't greet him as a stranger. He doesn't call the elder brother to look how a life of sin will teach you. Don't ever use, parents, don't ever use someone who come to grace as an example for your kids on what sin will do for them. Use people who come to grace as an example of the father who met them a long way away and wrapped his arms around them. And so I want you to see, I want you to see the Lord is not hiding very well in your life. He's hoping you'll seek him. And if you will seek him, he will be found by you. Stand with me all across the house. I feel the presence of the Lord here today. I hope you do too. I feel like somebody needs to be aware that God is not hiding very well in their life. He's there. You just need to seek him. You just need to open your heart to him. You just need to pour out your soul today. 
as our worship team comes to lead us deeper into the presence of the Lord here today, I want to invite any of you who would like to, if you have a need in your life, I'd like you to feel comfortable stepping out of that pew you're in and coming down to the front. Our pastoral team will be down here. We want to join with you in faith. If you need healing in your body, uh, feel free to come down to this front. You can wear your masks. Our, our pastors will wear their masks. Uh, if you have a circumstance that you need the touch of God upon, don't hide. Seek the Lord. Be intentional. Make a place in your life for the presence of God. As a, as a church, as all, this whole group of people, we're going to direct our hearts heavenward right now. and We're going to seek Him. Would you do that with me right now? Lord Jesus, I am praying for every individual in this house. I'm praying for every person who is joining us online, whenever they watch this. Lord, I'm praying that your love would reach to them. I'm praying that they would have a sense of your nearness, oh God. Let them see that the very thing they are pursuing with all of their heart is not going to be the secret of joy in their life. Let them see that the thing they have deified and they think that is the thing. Let them see that it's not. They've made an ultimate out of a good thing. It's just a good thing. That's all it'll ever be. But you are the only thing that can be an ultimate in their life. Oh, Lord Jesus, I'm praying right now. I'm calling upon your name. Don't let us live in deception. Don't let us live in confusion. Wake us up, oh God, to the reality of your presence, to the nearness of your power. In Jesus' name we pray. In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to First Church Charlotte. If this podcast has blessed you, please rate it with four or five stars. By doing so, you will help others find our free podcast and bless them. If you're in the Charlotte, North Carolina area, come worship with us at 4929 North Sharon Amity Road. For information about service times, church ministries, and so much more, visit us online at firstchurchclt.com. If you would like to help support our efforts, please text GIVE to 704-445-5353. We pray God's richest blessings to you. Come, worship with us.